AAT Chat, presented by the Journal of Athletic Training, the official journal of the National Athletic Trainers Association. I'm Dr. Shelby Baez, an assistant professor in the Department of Exercise and Sports Science at UNC Chapel Hill, and the co-host of JAT Chat with Dr. Kara Radzak. Today, I have the pleasure of being joined by Dr. Hope Davis-Wilson. Dr. Davis-Wilson is a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. She is an, the author of Association of Quality of Life with Moderate to Vigorous Physical Activity After Anterior Cruciate Ligament Reconstruction. Hope, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you guys so much for having me. Yeah. So let's just jump right in here. So the purpose of your paper was to examine associations between self-reported knee function and physical activity after ACL reconstruction. I think when we think of ACL, we automatically go to return to sport. Uh, can you just briefly discuss some of the differences between sport and physical activity? And, and can you provide our readers maybe with some background about what we know about physical activity after ACL reconstruction? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, return to sport is the primary goal for most athletes following surgery. Um, and it's kind of how we define success in the clinic. Um, so it makes sense that we think of return to sport first when we think of um, ACL reconstruction. But about 40 to 60% of individuals don't return to the same level of sport following their surgery. And return to sport doesn't tell us much about the frequency, the time, or the intensity of a person's movement. Um, so when we think of physical activity, it's not just sport participation. It can include activities of daily living, walking to campus if you're a college student, running errands, and it can include um, intentional workouts and exercise like running as well. So it's kind of a combination of all the movement throughout a person's day. Um, and so we know generally that people following ACL reconstruction uh, engage in fewer daily steps and they spend less time in moderate to vigorous physical activity compared to matched um, uninjured control groups. Um, so uh, it's something that we are concerned about in this population following surgery. So not just thinking about organized, structured uh, physical activity engagement, but some of the unorganized recreational exercise, walking, uh, running, jumping, some things that may not get picked up in sport that we yeah. also need to consider. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, with this population uh, from the current study, it was a lot of um, people from our college campus. And so a lot of their activity was walking to classes, um, maybe going to the gym, being on the elliptical. A lot of them did run for their exercise as well. But yeah, kind of all this additional physical activity that you don't just pick up in an organized sports setting. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so the other aspect is this clinically meaningful knee symptoms component. And you all noted that approximately 40% of individuals after ACL reconstruction will exhibit persistent clinically meaningful knee symptoms. So just for our listeners, what does this mean? And, and what do we know about it as it relates to clinical outcomes after ACL reconstruction? Yeah, so clinically meaningful knee symptoms, it's kind of uh, this operational definition of um, being symptomatic enough, having enough knee symptoms and difficulty and pain to consider going to seek medical care. 
Um, and so this definition was um, based off of, the, of an England et al. 2003 paper, um, and they used the COOS, or the knee injury and osteoarthritis outcome score, uh, which is a patient-reported outcome used to assess people's opinions about their knee following um, a knee injury or a knee surgery. And it, it, I think it was intended for people following ACL injuries who were at risk of post-traumatic knee osteoarthritis. Um, so patient-reported outcomes are super important, and we know that they associate on the research side with the way people walk, um, with knee imaging from MR images. Um, and we know that clinically it is associated with BMI, uh, with ipsilateral knee injury. So it's really important to monitor these patient-reported outcomes. And I think part of uh, what research is leading to is being able to define who has symptoms um, that are clinically meaningful versus those that don't have those clinically meaningful symptoms using that CUS um, outcome. Um, and a little more information about the CUS. So there are five subscales. There's knee-related quality of life, um, symptoms, functions during activities of daily living, um, function and function during sports. Um, and so all five of these uh, subscales are kind of tallied together. They're given a, a score between zero and 100 with 100 being the best score possible. Um, and so the idea is being able to, instead of have all of these different subscale questionnaires to just be able to define someone as symptomatic versus asymptomatic. And so uh, approximately, uh, how long does it take to complete the coups? Um, so it takes participants maybe 10 to 15 minutes if they're completing all five subscales. Um, and then the knee-related quality of life, if you were to just fill that one out, I think it's um, just a, you know, maybe less than a five-minute thing. Um, so I, I guess it does take a little bit of time in a clinical setting, but for a research study, it's definitely one of our easier outcomes that we collect. Yeah, but I, I think even clinical though, like 10, 15 minutes, but you get so much information about symptoms and pain and function that it could be one of those good questionnaires to integrate into clinical practice to um, start to identify some of these early knee symptoms and meaningful symptoms. Um, so you mentioned a little bit about dichotomizing individuals into symptomatic versus asymptomatic. Uh, so can you talk a little bit more about the, the England criteria and what are some other ways that we've seen people, uh, our researchers categorize individuals into a symptomatic group versus asymptomatic? Yeah, so the England criteria, which is what we did in the, the current study, um, is based off of it kind of goes from the knee-related quality of life measure. And so um, to be identified as symptomatic, a person had to score less than 87.5 out of 100 on the CUS quality of life questionnaire. In addition to that, they had to score um, a, below a similar cutoff um, for two out of the four other subscales. Um, so kind of a centered around the quality of life questionnaire with some additional subscale thresholds that they had to be below. And so that was how um, you were a person was defined as symptomatic. Um, and so there are a few different ways, a few different thresholds that um, some research groups are going towards. Um, for example, Harkey et al. Um, is using a similar CUS subscale cutoff to identify folks specifically after ACL reconstruction who may be at risk of early osteoarthritis. Um, the, the England et al. Uh, criteria that we used was used uh, originally for folks with meniscal injury, um, older adults, I think in their 
species. Um, so there are some different ways that are being looked at to classify people as symptomatic versus asymptomatic. Um, but the commonality between all these things is that we really are working off of that COOS um, questionnaire and identifying thresholds um, that people are either over or under. And I think that England um, et al. criteria does do a nice job. Uh, for example, in the England et al. 2003 paper, um, I think they found that about 43% of individuals um, or sorry, using the England et al. criteria, we found that about 43% of individuals were symptomatic two years post-ACL reconstruction. And that actually matches really nicely um, with the knowledge we have that about 44% of individuals do go on to develop post-traumatic knee osteoarthritis following ACL reconstruction. So yeah, no criteria is probably perfect, um, but I think it's a good sign that there's so many commonalities between the different criteria used. Yeah, I think that's a fascinating statistic that she just said about 40% exhibiting these early neo-A symptoms and then going on to develop PTOA uh, after ACL reconstruction. But I also think it's uh, concerning that we see 40% of these patients are exhibiting these symptoms. Um, so I think it's, it's, it's exciting in your work that you're starting to identify, okay, what are, how is this associated with other outcomes after ACL reconstruction? So specifically here, physical activity. So what, what measures did you use? Uh, and then what do we usually see when we think about measuring physical activity in, in research? Yeah, so for this study, we used a research-grade physical activity monitors. Specifically, we used ActGraft uh, GT9X links. Um, and so we had participants wear these uh, triaxial accelerometers on their right hip. Um, and it's a pretty small, like, nebulous type of device. It doesn't seem to bother participants to wear them. But they wore them for um, seven days during all waking hours. Um, and so we, include valid, we included valid wear periods as, um, you know, an individual wearing the active, uh, the Actograph for at least 10 hours per day for uh, at least four days. Specifically, they had to have three weekdays and one weekend. Um, and so from that research grade physical activity monitor, we took um, average daily step count um, and then time each day spent in moderate or vigorous physical activity. So I think daily step count kind of speaks for itself. We probably all know what that outcome looks like. Maybe it's around 10,000 steps per day. Um, but for moderate to vigorous physical activity, that is identified as more intentional activity. So brisk walking or running or something else that gives you an elevated heart rate. So potentially more intentional physical activity as opposed to just maybe walking more slowly in a grocery store or something like that. Um, and those are pretty common variables that you're going to see in the physical activity monitoring literature. Um, and so we chose those because we, we liked that daily step count represented your overall physical activity volume. And then we liked that moderate to vigorous physical activity kind of separated out and gave you your more intentional physical activity. So, so one thing you, you mentioned was that you collected on both the weekdays and the weekend. Uh, can you just mention a little bit about why both were intentionally collected? Oh yeah, definitely. So um, many populations, there's going to be a difference between their amount of physical activity on a weekday versus a weekend. And I think that difference kind of um, 
is eliminated with older adults who maybe have less flexibility in their schedule. But for our younger adults, many who were in college, it was vital that we had both the weekdays and the weekend. Um, if you think about what you did in college on the weekends, it was probably really different from the weekday. Um, so we did see some differences and it was important that we were able to collect both in this study. So, so clinically, as we're thinking about potentially measuring physical activity, um, we may want to include both weekday and weekend uh, measures as we're trying to, to get an average of daily steps or moderate to vigorous physical activity. Yeah, um, so good point. Yeah. So, as, so you mentioned using the actigraph uh, for maybe someone who can't get their hands on an actigraph. What would you recommend for clinicians who want to start to integrate or measure physical activity in their practice? Yeah, I think, um, you know, the, the benefit of the timing of this study is that a lot of your athletes or your patients are probably going to have a smartwatch or a Fitbit. Um, also, a simple pedometer will give you um, an estimate of daily step count as well. So I think that there are a lot of devices out there that are giving pretty okay estimates of physical activity. Um, and if you're a yeah, provider interested um, in your patient's physical activity, that can be a really um, nice place to start. Yeah, I think I've seen some like wrist pedometers for like 10 bucks on Amazon. So I think it's a, a pretty feasible way to start to, to measure some of these things in, in clinical practice. Yeah. Um, so to specifically your, your paper and your um, study. So we've talked a lot about, about the outcomes, but what all did you find as it relates to knee function and physical activity after ACL reconstruction? Yeah, so for our primary outcome, we were looking at the association between knee-related quality of life that was measured from the COOS um, and our physical activity outcomes, so daily steps and time and moderate to vigorous physical activity. Um, we had 66 participants in that primary aim, and they were pretty heterogeneous with their time um, post ACL reconstruction. So we had participants from six months post-surgery uh, to, to years post-surgery. Um, and anyways, within this primary aim, we did control for um, age and months post-ACL reconstruction, as well as concomitant meniscal history. And we found that there was really zero association between um, self-reported quality of life and um, either physical activity outcome. So no association there. I guess can you tell me a little bit of why maybe this was observed or what do you what did you all hypothesize? Yeah, sorry. Yeah. So we hypothesized that we would see an association between um, you know, better quality of life and more time spent in physical activity. Um, and then contrary to our, our hypothesis, we, we found that there was just legitimately zero correlation between these two variables when we were looking at our entire cohort. Um, however, as a secondary aim, um, we hypothesized that if we dichotomized our participants into those who were symptomatic and those who were asymptomatic, we might see um, associations within those cohorts that we didn't see with the, with the entire group. Um, and so we had 36 individuals who were asymptomatic and 30 who were symptomatic. Um, and then within the symptomatic group, when we looked, we found that individuals who engaged in more uh, time and moderate to vigorous physical activity reported better knee-related quality of life. And that was specifically in folks who were symptomatic. Um, we did not find that association in folks who were asymptomatic. So still in our asymptomatic group, um, those that reported just essentially no symptoms related to their knee, we found no association between their quality of life and um, engagement in physical activity. 
so the <laughs> so the symptomatic group who engaged in more physical activity had better quality of life. Yes, yeah, and so that was specific to those who were symptomatic. Um, so, so yeah, it's kind of like a brain teaser to think about, but <laughs> those who did report symptoms um, or out of those that did report symptoms, those who had better quality of life did engage in more physical activity, um, specifically time and moderate to vigorous physical activity. Um, now, to complicate things further, we did not see associations between daily steps and nearly quality of life in either the asymptomatic or the symptomatic group. So these associations were specific to moderate to vigorous physical activity. So lots of questions just coming into my brain thinking about that. Yeah. And um, so I guess starting with why do you think we saw this that association with the symptomatic group with the physical activity and quality of life? Is it just engaging in physical activity makes you happier or makes you feel better? Or, or what do you think? Yeah, so I have a few hypotheses. I think first, you know, we did not see that association in the asymptomatic group. And um, we hypothesized that perhaps those who don't have symptoms don't have to modify the activity that they participate in. Maybe it's something they don't have to think about. And that's why we didn't see that association. However, if you're a person who is experiencing some significant symptoms of, of pain or discomfort in your knee, perhaps you are modifying the type of activity that you're doing. Specifically, maybe you're modifying that intentional higher intensity physical activity. Um, maybe you are not modifying your overall daily step count. Um, and perhaps that explains part of why we didn't see an association just between daily steps and knee-related quality of life in either group. Um, so that's one hypothesis. Um, and, and then another uh, vice versa is that, yeah, perhaps those who have a higher quality of life, um, or sorry, those that are participating in more physical activity, um, perhaps it's, it's able to modify or mitigate their symptoms a little bit. Yeah, I, I just wonder if that group who's engaging in more like intentional physical activity, if they're more aware of their knee symptoms as well, because they're being exposed to it while they're engaging in their physical activity and the exercise. Yes, um, yeah, or perhaps some people opt out of it if there is pain. Yep, yes, yeah. no, it makes a lot of sense. Um, so interesting and unexpected results, uh, but I think it's uh, extremely fascinating. Um, so I guess, where do we go clinically based off of the results of your paper? What's What are the next steps or as a clinician, what should we take away from this? Yeah, I think that our paper adds to the literature coming out that physical activity is important following knee injuries. Um, and I think that we have a lot of options for um, clinicians to start being able to, um, to talk with their uh, patients about physical activity and also provide a little bit of monitoring with a, with a smartwatch or a Fitbit or a pedometer. Um, I think that one of the caveats and what we need to think about next is timing for physical activity. I think um, what we found is that folks with ACL reconstruction engage in less physical activity. Um, folks that are participating in more maybe report higher quality of life, but this is with a really heterogeneous time group. We have people who are years out from ACL reconstruction. So to me, I think that what is next is being able to um, 
look at people who are much earlier following ACLA construction and really monitor all parts of their recovery as they go into their um, return to sport testing to, to be able to see when is it too early to increase the physical activity? What's the optimal timing for us to actually um, start to intervene on physical activity? And so I think I'm hearing like the big picture, not just let's get them back to sport, of course, but also let's make sure that they're engaging in physical activity and their daily steps and in moderate to vigorous physical activity, uh, active minutes uh, throughout yes. the course of their week. Um, awesome. So uh, last thing. So can you provide, I guess, a take-home point for, for, for all of our readers, whether a researcher, a clinician, et cetera, about your paper? Yeah, yeah. I think that this adds to the literature that not only should we focus on return to sport, but we should also consider how to uh, help our athletes and patients engage in the physical activity, um, even if this physical activity isn't sport-specific. Um, and I think that, um, you know, this contributes to being on the right track to helping providers uh, be able to monitor their athletes and give some feedback on physical activity and, and to just have patients be aware that physical activity is important. Wonderful. Well, Hope, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, this article is available free of charge by the Journal of Athletic Training. I highly recommend everyone go and download this current manuscript when it comes out in an upcoming issue. Uh, thank you so much, and we will see you next time.